Will you please take your Bibles this morning and open them with me to Mark chapter 11. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 19 this morning. This is a passage that covers Monday of Passover week. The final week of the earthly life and ministry of the Lord Jesus in a passage that is just as relevant to us today as it was to the original context 2,000 years ago. So please follow along with me as I read beginning at Mark 11, verse number 12. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. The he there is Jesus. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Lord, we ask your blessing upon your word, read from the, the lips of a flawed and certainly fallible servant. But your word is not flawed and fallible. So we pray that by your spirit it would go forth now into our hearts, the heart of every believer and the heart of every unbeliever here this morning or watching or listening online, and produce fruit unto righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you, ever, have you ever seen someone overreact to something? Or, or maybe you overreacted to something yourself. Now right now my family's shaking in their boots because they think here comes an illustration. But no, not today. Well, they know I tend to overreact. And I think if we're honest, most of us do. We... we we overreact when our response to something is out of proportion to what actually took place, what actually happened. And maybe it was something your spouse said that you misunderstood and you got angry about that you shouldn't have. Or maybe you've been having a really bad week and then some co-worker or perhaps a friend at school says something that just really pushes you over the edge. And you just take out all your frustration on whoever and whatever is near you. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I 
Well, this passage today contains two events that many consider to be overreactions by Jesus. I've read commentary, and after commentary, every single one of them take that, you know, or at least mention that, uh, that, that many think that Jesus overreacted here. I mean, he essentially kills a fig tree for not having figs when it wasn't even fig season. And he angrily turns over tables in the temple. Many Christians are confused by the idea that Jesus could be angry at all, much less in a violent way like he was here in the temple and cursing that poor fig tree. I mean, isn't there a way that we can explain these events to make them a little more compatible with the gentle, patient, and kind Jesus that we are comfortable with today? That we have really crafted after our own image today? No, friends, not really. We can't change what's written. We have to deal with the Jesus that Mark sets before us here. And the Lord Jesus is not over, overreacting at all. In fact, His reaction reveals His righteous zeal for pure religion and reverent worship. And the bigger picture here is not a cursed fig tree or overturned tables in the temple. The big picture is that Jesus judges faithless and hypocritical religion. I need my bench to to settle down right here. Jesus judges faithless and hypocritical religion. And this passage serves as a blunt warning for the church today because we too are becoming increasingly faithless and hypocritical. All you have to do is take a look at the church in America right now. We are as fruitless as this fig tree that Jesus cursed and as commercialized as the temple that He went in and turned over the tables in. The Lord is speaking to His church today through this passage. He's speaking to Park Bible. And so let's apply the truth of this passage to our own context, our own church, certainly, but also our own individual lives today by way of two main thoughts. The first is that Jesus curses fruitless religion. He curses fruitless religion. Verse 12 says, on the following day, so when you're following the timeline of the week, this was Monday of Passover week. And again, I told you last week, I follow the traditional uh, view on Passover week, the Passion Week of the Lord Jesus. Palm Sunday, we just witnessed that last week, and now He's 
coming again to Jerusalem on Monday, when they came from Bethany, a village about two miles east of Jerusalem, the, the gospel writer Mark says that Jesus was hungry. Verse 13, And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So Mark, in his narrative of the Lord Jesus Christ's life, he shows us once again the humanity of Jesus. Yes, he was fully divine, but he was also fully human like you and me. So he got hungry on his way walking to Jerusalem. And he sees a fig tree that Mark says was in leaf. Now fig trees in leaf would have, they would have these buds that though they would not be ripe, yet they, they could be eaten. These would, be the, these would become the earliest crop that were harvested during the fig season, which Mark plainly tells us is not yet. This is probably taking place in March. Fig season was mid-August through October. And so that's why Mark adds this little parenthetical note to let his readers know that, well, it wasn't really even fig season yet. So if it wasn't fig season yet, then why did Jesus get so bent out of shape about a fig tree that didn't have figs? It was because this tree had nothing at all. It didn't even have the edible buds. It had leaves. It had the appearance of figs. And when a fig tree was in leaf but had no buds or figs at all, then that tree would produce no figs. It would produce no crop that year. And so Jesus says to the tree in verse 14, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. He cursed this tree. And we didn't read it in today's text, but we will next week. On the next day when they came back, the disciples found this tree dead. Now, if we read this account of the cursing of the fig tree outside of its context, it may look like Jesus did overreact. In fact, um, Bertrand Russell, who wrote much about the reason why he was not a Christian, he was not a believer, cited this very incident as one of the reasons why. Why was Jesus so vindictive toward this poor plant? If we read it outside of its context, it, it appears like maybe the Lord did overreact. But look what comes next. Look what Mark is shaping here for our view. The commercialized mess in the temple. And so with this fig tree 
on his way to the temple, Jesus is showing us that this fig tree is an image of the fruitless and empty faith that Israel's religion had become. That's what it's about. They had the appearance of fruit, but no fruit. They had a rich and and full leaves of religious forms. But they were empty of true faith and worship. And I wonder today, friends, if we are like that fig tree that represented Israel's empty and fruitless faith. Do we have a profession of faith that has the appearance of spiritual vitality, but are barren of any real fruit? Would Jesus find fruit if he came to eat from the tree of your life, friends? Or would you leave the Son of God hungry? I have pondered that question with deep conviction all week long. Would the Lord be able to eat from my tree? Or do I have a mere appearance of fruitfulness, but am inwardly barren? This is convicting. J.C. Ryle, that great Anglican bishop of the 19th century, he says this, The fig tree is a warning against an empty profession of Christianity, unaccompanied by sound doctrine and holy living. But above all, there is a voice in that withered fig tree for all carnal, hypocritical, and false-hearted Christians. We would, well would it be for all who are content to live with the name Christian while in reality they are dead if they would only see their own faces in the glass of this passage. Do you see yourself in this fig tree? But what about on a larger scale? What about beyond our individual lives? What about those churches in America? What about the church in America? Is she a tree with leaves but no fruit? Oh, friends, I think so. I think so. You see, we are rich in beautiful buildings. and programs for every conceivable need or demographic. You need a divorce program, we've got that. You need a, an alcohol program, we've got that. You need an addiction program, we've got, we've got programs for children, teens, youth, babies, singles. We've got it. We have spectacular services with engaging speakers who will hold your attention have you on the edge of your seat 
Professional musicians, honestly, though, even though most Christian music today is just four chords over and over and over. That's besides the point. We have all this production value in the American church, but we are barren of real fruit. We're watching Christian leader after Christian leader, pastors of large American churches, well-known names, denounce the Christian faith. We're seeing our young people reject Christianity and embrace the religion of secularism. We're watching once conservative Bible-believing churches and seminaries compromise with the unbiblical ideologies of our culture. All the while, we're the richest and biggest that we've ever been. We've got leaves full, beautiful leaves, but no fruit. And friends, if the American church does not repent, Jesus will say to us, may no one ever eat from your fruit again. Maybe he already has. Jesus curses fruitless religion. Secondly, in this passage, we see that Jesus condemns corrupt worship. If you remember from last week, the the triumphal entry of Christ ended with, with Jesus walking into the temple and He looks around at everything that's there before going back to Bethany to stay the night. And we noted that Mark just wasn't trying to give some you know unimportant details. He was pushing the narrative forward to this point right here in verse number 15 where he says, And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Oh, friends, oh, imagine the scene Verse 16, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And you get the impression from the way that Mark writes this, that Jesus already had his mind made up what he was going to do when he got to the temple the next day. He saw something the day before when he walked in and looked around that bothered him. All night long. And now he's come back on Monday to take care of some business. As my dad used to say sometimes before he would take me to the back room of the house for some corrective instruction, if you understand what I'm saying. Jesus has come to clean up the mess in his father's house. It was the week of Passover. Jewish pilgrims would travel from all over to get to Jerusalem. And instead of bringing their, their animal sacrifices with them on those long distance trips, 
the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council in Israel, they were over the temple worship, the Sadducees in particular, they would have approved animals available for purchase. So you wouldn't have to, to, to make the long journey to Jerusalem along with your, your sacrifices. And of course, not everyone had the same form of currency. And so money changers were available to convert the worshiper's money into what is called the Tyrian shekel. It was the standard currency of the Jewish temple at that time. And now none of this was necessarily wrong, okay? We need to, we need to understand that. The animals provided by the Sanhedrin, the money changers, they, they, were, they were providing a helpful service to those who traveled long distances to get to Jerusalem for Passover. The problem was that a legitimate service had turned into a corrupt operation, a corrupt commercial enterprise because as the only provider of the approved sacrificial animals, the Sanhedrin could charge anything they wanted. They could extort money from worshipers with exorbitant prices. And the money changers could charge dishonest exchange rates. That's what Jesus means when He says, you've turned the, the temple, the house of prayer, into a den of robbers. You're stealing from people. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that as many as 200,000 plus lambs might be sacrificed during Passover week. Think about that. 200,000. You do the math. This was an enormous commercial enterprise. And friends, all of this took place in what we call the outer court of the temple. What is called the court of the Gentiles. And on top of all of that, the temple had become a shortcut for travelers to get between the city and the Mount of Olives to the east. That's what verse 16 means when Mark says that Jesus would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He's cutting off this shortcut route. You're using this for the wrong reason. And all this corrupt and casual use of the temple, friends, it ignited the passion, the righteous anger of the Lord Jesus to see His Father's house used in such an irreverent way. And so His reaction was not an overreaction at all. In fact, it was the only appropriate reaction to such a misuse of this sacred place set apart for the worship of the living God. And here's the real tragedy. The defilement of that sacred place that was central and had been so central to the life of the people of God and the worship of God. The defilement of that place was being operated by the spiritual leaders of Israel. The chief priest of the Sanhedrin. Look at verse 17. 
And he was teaching them. So he, he went on a fit, I guess you could say. He was turning the tables over and then he started preaching. I think probably while he was doing it. Saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. That phrase is unique to Mark, by the way. Mark was writing to Gentile people. This was occurring in the court of the Gentiles. But you have made it a den of robbers. And Jesus is quoting here from Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. And then in verse 18, Mark says, And the chief priest and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They wanted him dead. They wanted to get the chief priest. They wanted to get rid the leaders of Israel wanted to get rid of Jesus because he had corrupted, he had interrupted their corrupt enterprise. You see, they had become the false shepherds the Lord spoke out against in Jeremiah 23. When he said, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. A few verses down in verse halfway through verse 10 of Jeremiah 23, the Lord says, Their course is evil and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. So the chief priests of Jesus' day were acting just like their false predecessors. Using and abusing the people of God for their own profit. And friends, not much has changed over the years, has it? Corruption is stamped all over the pages of church history. In fact, it was the deep corruption of the Roman Catholic Church that sparked the 16th century Protestant Reformation. When Martin Luther, a a Catholic monk from Germany, protested, among other things, the selling of indulgences to fund the building of St. Peter's Basilica, which draws visitors by the thousands to this day. They were selling indulgences to build that building, that church. An indulgence was a, a, a note promising forgiveness for a fee. Fast forward to the day, and today, and we, we see the same corruption still in the church, don't we? Prosperity preachers who... On TV, they promise healing. They promise blessing. They promise prosperity. If you'll only make that seed faith donation. Pastors and church leaders mishandling God's money. Wielding unbiblical power in ways that use and abuse their sheep. Scandals, cover-ups, hush money 
We read about it all the time. It is still very much alive in the church. But it's not just church leaders, is it? It's the corruption of our worship services every Lord's Day. We have worship teams in America that sing secular pop music. Complete with choreographed dance. We have pastors who zip line to the pulpit from the ceiling, the back of the church. We have elaborate stage sets with roller coasters and Ferraris on the platform. I'm not making this stuff up. You can find this stuff and look at it for yourself on YouTube. These are churches here in America. Now what do you think Jesus would do if he, if he came into a place supposedly set apart for the worship of God and saw all of that? You think he would turn over some tables? Do you think he would turn over some pulpits? Friends, he would burn it down to the ground. You see, Jesus is not indifferent to our corruption <laughs> the way we think that he is. He doesn't turn a blind eye to it. And what the Sanhedrin was doing then is tame compared to what we're doing in our churches in America today. We are as corrupt as they were and we wonder why we do not see revival. Friends, what have we done? What have we done to the Father's house? We've made it a spectacle. What have we done to the Father's house? And how would the Son respond and react to our churches? But what about, what about our own lives? Let's, let's get this personal. What about our own hearts? Is there a reverence about the way we approach God in worship? The way we approach Him personally, is there a sacredness to our faith? Are we authentic in our relationship with the living God or are we just fruitless fig trees and corrupt temples? What tables would the Lord Jesus turn over in our lives? What is in us that nobody else knows about but He sees what is in us that might ignite His holy anger? And friends, if you're still believing that Jesus does not get angry, you didn't read this text. He gets angry. Would the shallowness of our faith ignite His righteous anger? Or maybe the lack of zeal that we have for Him. Friends, I think I have some tables that He would come in and turn over. 
What about you? We need our, we need our temples cleansed too, don't we? I'm not talking about this right here. I'm talking about this. We need our temples cleansed. Verse 19, And when the evening came, they went out of the city. This is another one of those marking verses that is profoundly ordinary. <laughs> he's, he's awesome at this. He writes these things that just seem like ordinary you know, details, but they are significant. Because he's going to use yet this verse to drive his passion narrative forward, to keep moving forward. Jesus takes care of business in the temple on Monday, but he leaves and he'll be back. He has more teaching to do, more grace to extend, more lives to change. You see, these people changing money and selling these sacrificial animals in the temple, in the courts of the temple, they had no idea that the one pure Lamb of God was in their midst. And with His sacrificial death just four days later on Calvary's cross, He would render everything they were doing obsolete. And friends, if you're hearing this message this morning, you don't have to go to a city, a temple, a church, a priest, or any kind of altar to have your sins atoned for. You simply must look to Christ by faith and trust with every fiber of your being you must trust in His life and in His death. Not some religious act that you do or perform. Not any sacrifice or some offering. Just faith in Christ alone. Friends, I want to encourage you to do that today as we pray and sing together. Let's pray.